Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. I'm Piotr Schokes and today I'm joined by Lily Sullivan and Harjan Medech to discuss the language of the Middle East. We cover the region itself, the problems with the current discourse about the Middle East and the coverage of people within it, and our own experiences studying it and traveling there. Those representations of the Orient had very little to do with what I knew about my own background in life. And this writing was an organized form of writing, like an organized science, what I've called Orientalism. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. To all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East, the peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. The events of 9-11 really convinced many Europeans and Americans that the greatest threat to their way of life, to their peace, their security, lay in the Arab world in particular and in the Muslim world more generally. So the first thing I think is important to mention with this episode is that the podcast is called the Middle East Podcast and we all do Middle Eastern studies in Oxford, but we don't actually know or have a strict definition of what the Middle East is. It is a very new term, but Harjo, would you like to introduce the history of like the modern Middle East and its political system? I think we can very comfortably track the foundations of the concept of the modern Middle East to the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire around the ending of World War One. They were in debt to multiple European powers. They had been left behind during the Industrial Revolution. Their agricultural progress was very, very limited. Um, the power of the empire was very much centralised in Anatolia, leaving these peripheral territories very much to their own devices. And as a result of that, the Ottoman Empire, especially in the early 1900s, was... I would say, plagued by uh, secessionist and independence movements. What fundamentally chiseled out the modern Middle East as we know it were these three agreements, declarations, treaties. You have the Sykes-Picot on May 16th, that was signed on May 16th, 1916, uh, which was an agreement between Mark Sykes, a British diplomat, and a French diplomat, Francois Picot. Uh, and essentially they sat down, looked at a map of that region, identified the pre-existing Ottoman administrative units and drew up borders that would essentially placate the imperial ambitions of both Britain and France. Britain got southern Iraq, Jordan, Palestine and France was given large chunks of Iraq, Turkey, Syria and Lebanon. Bearing in mind this, the Ottoman Empire had not yet formally dissolved you then have the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which is a statement declaring British support for the establishment of a national home for Jewish communities in the Ottoman land of Palestine. And then the cherry on the top of the cake is the Treaty of Sev in 1920, which is right after World War One, which formally portioned up the Ottoman Empire amongst the Allies. And the Ottomans themselves were only given a very small region in Anatolia, which would eventually become Turkey. And fundamentally, what the Ottomans left behind was a bunch of territories that had been neglected for a very long period of time. They'd been stripped of their administrative capacities that had um, suffered and not been able to um, progress in the way that, for example, Europe was progressing during the Industrial Revolution. And so the region was very, very vulnerable and very open to just being taken by these imperial powers. Uh, essentially making it a very, very easy colonial um, 
Landcraft. It's very cliche, but the classic term for the Ottoman Empire during this time was the, the sick man of Europe. So it, it was kind of this, I don't know if you would agree with this, Piotr, but this kind of opportunistic grab. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Sykes-Picot Agreement is this, you know, it was sort of based on Ottoman territories, but it was, the, you know, the, the main motivation in the divvying up was kind of allocating resources between Britain and France. There was no consideration for the history or culture of, you know, the, where the lines were being placed on this map. I think if you place it into, you know, a broader context as well, there wasn't like the height of the colonial era for Europe. Like they were doing the same, they had the same policies in Africa as well, where they were drawing lines which barely made any sense when you considered the ethnicities of the people who lived or their religions. Many of the problems you see now in the Middle East, like Israel, Palestine, it all comes from this you know, very callous way of dividing the, the Middle East into countries with no consideration for, for what had happened before or what was going to happen. But it's simply another region where colonial history has had very severe consequences, even today. I would say it's a very much a de facto colonization. It's not like the British and French mobilized their troops and invaded these regions. It was by pure virtue of the Ottoman Empire being a crumbling entity and then seeing this as an opportunity for um, imperialist expansion. It's really important to identify how much the Ottoman Empire had destabilised the Middle East um, in an administrative, in a cultural, in a uh, social sense and that's what allowed these treaties to go ahead. I think also something which is relevant here, and we'll discuss this more later, but it's about stereotyping of the Middle East because the purpose of the mandates officially was to develop indigenous institutions so that these people could eventually rule themselves. But obviously the Europeans saw it as their responsibility in this time to do that because they felt mm. Arabs were incapable of ruling themselves. And it's a very ironic situation where they are incapable of ruling themselves because you've never given them the opportunity to do so. But we'll get back to that and the consequences of stereotyping the Middle East later. But it shows there's a long and very clear line from then to what, even what's happening now. The Middle East, though, as a term itself, also has a very clear colonial history because if you think of it, it's the Middle East, but East relative to what? And that's to Europe. India's first prime minister, Nehru, <laughs> he observed that it should be called West Asia because of where it was situated. And I think that is something that is recurring in modern discussions of the names we give to these regions and how we end up upholding a very specific world order if people at the time not necessarily directly at the time but quite soon after were noticing that that term was an issue i think it's quite interesting to see that it's still in modern use today in addition to that, I mean, I have a similar anecdote with that. There was a student in my Middle East Studies program from China, and she was saying that the first time that she heard the phrase Middle East didn't make sense to her because to her, she was saying it should be called the Middle West. It's, all, it's very relative. It's very, it's, you know, it's obviously a very, it's a very Eurocentric idea. For like the specific history of it, it was the term Middle East was first used in 1902, and it's uh, covered all the area between Egypt and Burma, which meant that mm. India was at that point part of the Middle East as well, which it isn't anymore. And then the Middle East became more official during World War II when the British military established a specific Middle East command. And that also involved North Africa. 
Go ahead. Oh. So the guy who coined the term Middle East was an American naval strat- strategist. The region became, I think, a greater point or location of interest as tensions between Russia and Britain increased. It's like speculated that the reason why it was so important was because it kind of stood in the way of India and it kind of protected India. Um, however, what's, what's interesting to note about the term Middle East that, is that it's actually being used by the people within the region as well. For example, in Arabic, it's al-Sharq al-Awsat. And in Hebrew, if I recall correctly, it's something very similar, which I find quite interesting just because they have clearly like, you know, taken the term and taken their meaning out of it as well, even if it makes no sense considering where they are, you know, geographically. But I guess that's, that's you know, how history goes. Um, I think it's also quite a common fallacy that the term itself is uh, broadly used in the Middle East. So we were doing a lesson today um, and we were speaking about the language that people use in the Middle East. And actually, there's no collectivist identity of like Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. It's very much understood. So, for example, if you're from North Africa, as in like Morocco, Algeria, uh, Tunisia, sometimes Libya, um, that's like the uh, Al-Maghrib Al-Arabi, which is the Arab West. And then I think people are very keen to maintain the concept of the Sham, like Al-Sham, which is 11. And then you have Al-Khalij, which is the Gulf. And I think those are the identities that stick, not the sort of overarching Middle Eastern identity. I don't think people actually feel Middle Easterners themselves. I don't think they actually feel an intimate personal connection with the concept of Middle East because the internal factions and divisions are really prominent. I think that's correct. By by using the term in, in the West and in media and basically everything we do, you you do create this subconscious assumption that, you know, the Middle East is one place and that everybody's very similar. And it's probably been enough conversations we've all had when we travel to the region where somebody asks, Oh, you're going to the Middle East, isn't it dangerous? With the assumption mm. that, you know, Syria is the same as Jordan is the same as Egypt. You know, absolutely isn't the case. But it always gets discussed in in a context together, like it's a Middle Eastern country first before it's its own country. I think it's also really interesting that you mentioned our degrees are like Middle Eastern studies. And I think area studies is something worth discussing. Yeah, well, we, we can do that. I'd like to hear your guys' perspective on this, but I feel like if you're going into area studies, you need to be aware of really the origins of your field because in its original in- incarnation, area studies served a very colonial purpose. It was ethnocentric, essentialist, imperialist. Yeah, like our studies. faculty. So as the Oriental uh, Institute yeah. at Oxford, all of them. Yeah, if it's original incarnation, it's serving this colonial purpose and its origins are founded in this kind of ethnocentrist, essentialist view of the region, that's going to trickle down into the modern day. It's very important to be aware of that because as an area scholar, basically you define how another culture is translated into your society. Orientalist art in the 19th century was made for audiences that weren't able to see the Middle East. I just want to put in quickly for listeners who might not know what Orientalist means specifically but it's basically from a book written by edward said do you want to continue explaining it lily you go ahead okay (laughs) (laughs) well in in, in 1978 if i recall correctly a man called edward said 
uh, from Columbia University in the US, wrote a book called Orientalism, where he basically challenges the knowledge basis of what the three of us study, like about how we look at the Middle East. His, his argument is basically that the Orient is always the opposite of the the West. So if the West is modern, the Orient is outdated. If Western people are, in, are intelligent and enlightened, you know, the other with a capital O are not. What he does is look at art, look at texts which are written and how they all encourage and perpetuate this assumption of a very strong distinction between East and West. And that's what Lily refers to when she means Orientalist. And I think it's a very pervasive, um, or it's a very present approach to criticism and theory, because I think the term Orientalism can be applied to so much, such as art, such as political approaches, foreign policy in some capacity, there's a lot of flexibility with the term Orientalist. And I think Orientalist art is probably the most uh, tangible uh, reality of Orientalism and the most easily um, identified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, like area studies and kind of this Orientalist perspective is, is was disseminated by Western artists for Western audiences. And it was popular, Orientalist art was very popular during a time when travel to the quote-unquote Orient was impossible for most. So these depictions along with travel narratives became the basis for people's understanding of the region. The issue is, is that these paintings were again made for Western audiences that wanted to see new places to which artists responded with a sort of sensationalist exoticism that then fed into this Western essentialist view of the Middle East as backward. The paintings were set in harems and souks filled with images of women that are either sexualized or repressed and men who are either lazy or violent. A classic example of this that you can look up is the snake charmer, which shows a naked snake charmer playing a flute in front of a group of men lazily smoking on a hookah. And what I think is interesting is that the, the so the British Museum had this a- exhibition last year called um, Inspired by the East, How the Islamic World Influenced Western Art. And its whole goal was to was to strip away this negative reputation that Orientalist art has. Rather than Orientalist art being this negative stereotyping of the region. They wanted, they wanted to show that Orientalist art was rooted in intentions to understand other cultures when travel wasn't really available to the wider population. But looking at the exhibit, it might have art that lends a slightly more respectful eye in some respects than, say, a naked snake charmer. It's, it's, it's ironic, though, because there's an, the exhibit also includes a collection of contemporary Orientalist art made by artists from the Middle East. And so, and the the idea is to split Orientalist art on its head by painting stereotypical images, but then blending in subversive topics. The curator kind of unintentionally contributes to this notion, these modern essentialist notions of the region, because all of the subversive content that's been curated is centered around hot topics such as you know, the burqa, female agency, and religious violence. So this 19th century view of the Middle East as being exotic, violent, lazy, has been 
passed down to the modern day so because the West, Western understanding of the region is kind of centered around this r- religious fanaticism, violence, and repression of women. So would you then also say that the target audience for that exposition, you know, probably wasn't Middle Eastern people. It was very much Western people. Yes. Again, it's kind of a full circle. You've gone yeah. full circle with the, uh, yeah, uh, Middle Eastern art made for Western audiences. Oh. I was just going to quickly add on to the discussion of the exhibition is that I remember at the time there was a sort of review, but kind of like a long read, more personal long read written by Sumaya Qasim for Lucy Writers Platform. Um, And in it, she was just discussing how throughout that exhibition, she didn't feel like it was for her. She didn't feel like it adequately tore away this fantasy of the Orient, of these Orientalist realities. And I think I remember just being quite moved by what she said. I hadn't attended the exhibit, but I just found um, the way she spoke about the exhibit really powerful because at the end of the day, she, as a Muslim woman, walked in and didn't feel like it was for her. And the whole point of that exhibit was to move away from these really exclusive orientalist realities that we see in the British Museum every other day. Um, And I think that just really hammers home your point, Lily, that this art isn't for people from these communities. It isn't from people from these regions. It's just for sort of like middle-class white art consuming elite. Being an area scholar, you need to be aware of these origins. You need to be aware of the impact that you can actually have because you are translating, quote unquote, this culture into your own society. This can have a, a negative or positive impact. Bernard Lewis is a really good example of this. For those who don't know, Bernard Lewis was one of the most influential scholars of the Middle East in the United States. Um, both the, the Democratic and Republican parties sought advice on policy issues, and he was um, kind of the go-to man for the Bush administration. What is What he is most famous for is something that he published immediately after 9-11. It was called What Went Wrong. And it was essentially explaining to American audience or Western audiences why 9-11 happened. But his his view is very ahistorical. It's very essentialist. It's honestly, it's, it's quite racist. And I feel comfortable saying that. Um, just okay. Looking at a com- look, comparing something that comparing a sentence from what went wrong. Um, yeah, can you can you read the next right? Okay, so yeah, this is this is I think this is a good example. So this is an article. This is from what went wrong in two thousand and three. Actually, so in two thousand and three, Bernard Lewis wrote, uh, "Children are likely to grow up either arrogant or submissive and unfit for a free, open society." And that mirrors imperialist origins of area studies has disseminated down because you compare that to something written 120 years earlier by the French Orientalist Ernest Renan, who said, the Mohammedan child becomes a fanatic, full of a stupid pride in the possession of what he believes to be the absolute truth, happy as with the privilege with what makes his inferiority. That's Mm. quite... Grim. There's a lot more quotes I would love to put in with Bernard Lewis. But I think my point being is that Lewis is completely ahistorical in his understanding of the region. He interprets the grievances 
that the region has with the West is stemming from a cultural and ideological intolerance to Western values because he was this a major advisor to the Bush administration. He informed the U.S. administration that conducted the Iraq invasion. But it was, it was one of the biggest failures of U.S. foreign policy. I, I think that's very fair to say. <laughs> <laughs> Related okay. to that, there was also this um, this guy who spoke in Oxford in early 2020, and he is the Ministry of Defense Middle East advisor. And this is a guy who wrote a book. I'm not going to mention his name, but he wrote a book called Soldier in the Sand. And on the cover of this book, he has Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, the Shah of Iran, and Lawrence of Arabia. What? And it is like a very clear example of like the stereotyping which goes on when people discuss the Middle East. That I, I should also mention on the cover, there's also pictures of tanks. Two. So, oh, my God. And, you know, it's, it's basically playing into the stereotypes people have of the Middle East, that it's, you know, a guy in the desert, a bunch of autocrats and terrorists. And it's not, you know, there's, there's a lot more to the Middle East than that, obviously. But the problem is that when people like Bernard Lewis and when people like this man, you know, express their opinions in very respected uh, contexts or in very respected forums, they get taken very seriously. And when they are being that reductivist about their perspective of the region, it has very serious consequences. Yeah. And actually, a really important thing about Bernard Lewis and about what went wrong, quote unquote, is that throughout that, throughout his writing, there is this kind of rationalization of, um, you know, the, the, the Middle East needs guidance. It needs intervention. It needs to be shaped in the right way and that it rationalizes western intervention in, in the region yeah that, that's something i wanted to get to anyway with it, it goes into politics with the iraq invasion with the invasion in afghanistan but it also on a much more micro level it, it happens with individual people as well where for example the invasion in afghanistan was to a certain extent justified by how the taliban treated women so what i often mm-hmm. see is that the stereotype is of a Middle Eastern woman and is that she's oppressed or that she's helpless in any way. I think I do find it really patronising the way people become overly involved in the issue of gender rights or women's rights or um, LGBTQ communities' rights in the Middle East, um, primarily because a lot of the time these issues are very, very present in the countries of this individual that is, you know, I don't know, like screaming about their disgust at how things are working, how things are operating in the Middle East. So I remember like a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation about honour killings in the Middle East and how they were so common and they were happening so often. And that's not to say honour killings don't occur, but the suggestion was it was a very much, it was very much an unchallenged aspect of Middle Eastern culture and also, there was a massive unwillingness to actually specify which countries, in which countries these honour killings were occurring. But I think primarily it was cases of honour killings in the past year in Jordan and how the Jordanian communities themselves had gone out, protested. And this person was so shocked. This just wasn't a thing for them. They didn't realise that, you know, the Middle East, there were people who didn't agree with these practices who wanted them abolished. I just think it is very patronising the way people do speak about uh, women's rights and the LGBTQ community's rights in the Middle East without um, 
first comprehending that actually their environments aren't as progressive as they think they are and actually they're just not as informed about these regions as they think they are and i think people are very willing to pass commentary because as a region the middle east does seem to be stripped of its autonomy um, and people are very unwilling to comprehend it as a very diverse and multiplicitous and multitudinous whatever word you want to use um area that houses an infinitely ethnically, religiously, racially diverse community of people. And I think there's always this assumption of um, a very strict cultural hegemony that exists in the Middle East and there's no diversity Mm -hmm. of opinion like we have over here in the West. And that is something I find that pops up again and again and again in discussion. And it's just so patronising because people don't have opinions. Do you think something similar applies to the hijab where it's seen as unerringly negative while mm. my friends when I lived in in Egypt a number of them wore the hijab and were very proud of wearing it but because of how it's been characterized both by the right wing in in the west but also even by the left wing as this symbol of oppression mm. it removes all the nuance from the discussion without understanding that some people yeah. see it as an expression of their individuality for example and I think it totally erases the reality of a very cultural acceptance of hijab not to say I personally don't think the hijab is up for debate in terms of, you know, how in France they've banned the hijab in places of work and how they just make life really hard for women who wear the hijab. I think at the end of the day, when Muslim women have a very personal relationship with the hijab. And for each Muslim woman, it is different. For some, it is purely religious. For some, it can be aesthetic. For some, it is cultural. I've worn it sort of on and off when I was younger. And I just remembered that the one like unerring question that I always got was did your parents force you to wear it and this is like very basic I I can guarantee every hijabi you know has had this exact question and it just goes to show how patronizing their comprehension of like my personal and bodily autonomy is but also their entitlement to the inner mechanics of my religious identity and that I think for me I find very like very audacious you wouldn't go around interrogating other people's religious realities so then what makes you feel so comfortable interrogating like a 14 year old girls i think i think that's great people for some reason that the stereotypes people have of middle easterners often seems like it should allow them to ask questions which if were asked the other way would be entirely unacceptable highly inappropriate no, there's just this, this this assumption that Muslim women need saving that they don't have any sort of agency or decision in their own lives. It's something if people have listened to the third episode of the podcast, thank you. But if they haven't, it's also mentioned by all three of the women which Friederike spoke to in that episode that what they want is to be supported, but what they don't want is to be seen as oppressed because then they have to fight two narratives. That just perpetuates the whole problematic structure we have of 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 the you know the white savior complex, which and has gone far enough. Mm-hmm. So um, and I think it it's so common and it's so invasive the way like Muslim <laughs> women are portrayed. I don't know if you've heard of the book "Do Muslim Women Need Saving" by Leila Abu Lord is a really popular piece of political writing, but it's not. It's just very much um, addressing the real life consequences of uh, portraying Muslim women as these helpless uh, damsels in distress, essentially. I I think it's just such a dehumanising approach to 
Muslim women as a community and also so disrespectful because why aren't we allowed the duality of other communities? Why can't we have both the struggles with personal autonomy and religion and I don't know, creativity, just the personal struggles that are afforded to so many other communities. It just feels that the portrayal of Muslim women, especially even in the case of Orientalist art is so two dimensional, is so reductive. Um, and I think it is something that is interrogated a lot amongst Muslim women, but nothing's actually changed. I would say the same discourse that existed about 10 years ago about the hijab is still very prominent now, which is very, very disappointing. I wouldn't say the the material reality of Muslim women has improved. <laughs> which is would either of you then also agree with the, the statement that things only become popular in the West if they fit our stereotypes of the Middle East. Because one of you mentioned Homeland, for example, earlier, and there's this very famous scene which you know raised some eyebrows in the Middle East where they are riding in an armored car through Gebeiza in Beirut, which for anyone who's been there, it's probably the, one of the richest areas in the city. It's very hip. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. But mm-hmm. if people don't see the Middle East in a way where it's dusty, where there's rubble, where it seems unstable. For them, it doesn't fit with the Middle East. And in, yeah. for example, in media, they might be less willing to consume it. Do you think that is still very much the case also beyond movies, for example? Yeah, when I went to the Middle East, I was like, why isn't it yellow? <laughs> I like, got, off, got off the airplane. I was like, I was expecting this to be yellow. Why is it not yellow? Why is the sky not yellow? That's all Homeland's fault. I've never watched it, but it's Homeland's fault. <laughs> no, I have to say, I, you know, I, I, I was studying, I was studied at the American University of Beirut and I was all prepped. I was very embarrassed when I got there because, because of what I had packed for clothing. I was basically, <laughs> I was dressed like a Sunday school teacher. I had a skirts <laughs> that oh t- like went to my ankle and these like very lo- like ugly button up shirts. And then I go there, and everyone looks right like it's just like like oh, a model. Everyone looks like a model. Everyone just like it's. I can tell everyone spent like two hours getting ready. I feel like I'm in like a Milan fashion show, and I just look like a frumpy kindergarten teacher because and yeah I guess because of my assumptions about the Middle East you know at that point I'd been studying the at that point I'd been studying the region for at least you know five years four years you'd think I know better but there I am Uh, I think Sorry, for for fear of this becoming like anecdote, like an episode full of anecdotes, I, I think I have one which fits. So many. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there, there's one which I think is very typifying for what we're speaking about. Because when I flew to Egypt in January 2019, I sat next to an American. And as Americans do, they always start chatting with you on the plane. <laughs> and <Horrible>. he, because <laughs> I'd been there before, yeah, he had a lot of questions. He was like, oh, is it safe? I was like, Cairo is probably the safest place I've been in my life. Um, and he, he wondered, oh, it's not going to be a problem if I'm an American. So, like, first of all, how would they know you're an American? And second of all, no, like, you know, they are very good at having the nuance to understand the difference between a government and the people in the country. And it's just, it was just so clear that well, some people are afraid of going to the Middle East because of the stereotypes, but because they never go, that they also, these stereotypes also don't get challenged. 
It's interesting, actually, because that was also a thing with, like, Orientalist scholarship. You have these people writing these books about the region, and they literally have never been there. Yes. They're writing, and, like, it's uh, it's kind of, it's like a photocopy, photocopier making, uh, or it's like a, you know, a copy of a copy of a copy of these people that haven't been to the region informing us about the region. It reminds me of what certain Middle Eastern countries do very effectively. There's examples of um, Yusuf Al-Utaibi, the Emirati ambassador to, to the US, who would often argue with American policymakers that they didn't understand the Middle East and they didn't understand the nuances of what was happening during the Arab uprisings in 2011, 2012. And because of that, he would use his or their assumption of his knowledge to create a narrative which benefited the UAE, which was very much a counter-revolutionary narrative and led to a lot of American support for the Sisi government, despite many of the human rights infringements. I think it's really interesting how we're discussing individuals who have never been to the Middle East or North Africa or the Orient and don't understand the intricacies and the realities of this region, but are still very comfortable in producing policy because this was really, I think, Lily, you were saying this earlier, this was really common in the initial colonial period where artists would paint Middle Eastern or North African harems but Mm. have never visited North Africa nor seen a harem. There was also a painter who was in the employ of Napoleon who had never travelled to the Near East but painted multiple paintings of Jaffa and I think um, some other cities as well. But I think it's really interesting that there's a very long-standing tradition of feeling very comfortable to produce like a piece of art or in this case a piece of policy on a region that you don't understand or have never witnessed in person Mm -hmm. that then i guess raises the question what do we have then a responsibility i wouldn't call us experts just yet but as people (laughs) with a slightly more knowledge of the region to call it out when we see things like this yeah obviously definitely i think we're like fortunate enough to be studying this very intimately at university. But I think also there has been a very long standing tradition of like left leaning liberals or like left wingers just over emphasizing their role in the salvation of a region. So I, I would say it's essentially the white savior complex, or like Western savior complex in my case. But in a more like theoretical manner i think like obviously we have to call out all of these ridiculous stereotypes that we hear but at the same time the salvation of the middle east is not it's not like vested in us i am not personally going to single-handedly save the middle east and i very much understand that role i'm very happy with that that is a lot of responsibility i don't want it but yeah i just think it is very important to strike a balance between you know, standing up for what you know is right, correcting these stereotypes, but also ensuring that the voices of people from Middle Eastern communities, North African communities, are given the freedom to discuss the intricacies of their realities in a way that doesn't immediately lead to some like sort of aggressive backlash. And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with is you may want to, for example, discuss the struggles that you have within your community, but it's so hard to find a way to discuss it without propagating a really racist islamophobic stereotype we just have so much to say about regions that uh, obviously westerners have messed up quite royally 
but it's not like we're doing any better. I think there's definitely (laughs) a case of having to get our own house in order because when you look at countries like America, which has had their Guantanamo Bay debacle or the Abu Ghraib prison torture scandal in, in Iraq, it, mm. it, it it reduces their moral standing completely and it just gives everybody this very strong sense of hypocrisy when one country is moralizing about human rights and development and progress. While at the same time, you yes. know, they're, they're drone striking people in Afghanistan, they're yeah. torturing people in Iraq, and they're doing extraordinary renditions to Cuba. It makes very little sense when a country like that is telling someone else how to behave. Did you guys get a chance to watch Once Upon a Time in Iraq? But it's, so it's essentially five-part series interrogating, or like interviewing, sorry, people on both sides of the Iraq war. So there's like Iraqis who are pro-Saddam, Iraqis who are anti-Saddam. They also interview American soldiers and the families of American soldiers and American generals. The thing that really, really stood out to me was that they kind of just blindly went in I always thought of the Iraq war as something like very malicious and very intentional and very well thought out in terms of like destroying Iraq. Then I watched this documentary and I was like, and I was just so shocked at how little these like generals knew about the region. That's what I, I, I think kind of going back to what you originally asked, I think that the Iraq invasion is a great example of why there needs to be a correction of what we know of the Middle East because the Iraq invasion or rather the Iraq reconstruction was just royally mishandled. You have these people that have no clue of how it works. Yeah, you ban anyone that was a a member of the Ba'ath Party from being in administration not realizing that you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party to be in government. And so then you have people that have no, you, the only option is that there are people in government that have no experience in government. And you and the US, I think, spent 60 billion uh, trying to rebuild Iraq, $15 million a day. And for what? I, I did read the biography of one of the generals in Iraq across the summer. So I have a bit more sympathy with them than I ever thought I would have. But it's basically yeah. what. Haja said that we often see it as something malicious, but it was woefully underprepared. And even mm-hmm. the generals are saying, we don't want to do this. We don't think it's going to be successful. And that is almost more scary than if it was malicious, because if it's malicious, at least there's purpose behind it. This just seemed so... Disorganized. Yeah, like mm-hmm. harebrained. And they still went for it. And that, I think, implicitly shows how little faith they have in the Middle Eastness, that even a very poorly thought out plan would still be better than the status quo. It's this essentializing of the region. It's this, you know, painting it with a wide brush, thinking that you understand the entire, you know, the culture and the history. What I would say, say we're using understand in such a liberal way, because the reality is what ends up happening when people do area studies is we're, we're definitely given... I wouldn't say a superficial comprehension of the region, but a comprehension of the region that very much fits the narrative that we're seeking um, to develop about the Middle East. And I think I I find it really interesting that uh, this entire episode is about moving away from language about the Middle East and I'm falling right into that trap again and again. But I think the reality is, what does it, it's a very different thing to understand the Middle East from an outsider's point of view and to 
spend time learning or absorbing the history but it's again so different to if you grew up there and I think it's just very much knowing where your involvement in the region stops and I think for us it's a lot earlier than sometimes we're willing to to identify oh to admit yeah yeah no I think you know I don't think it's possible to move away from the language completely because of Mm -hmm. you know how language works but I do think the most important thing is to have an awareness of it yeah it's not that you need specialized knowledge to study the Middle East but you have to go through a process of unlearning what you were taught and this includes both popular culture and academia and this is true for you know area scholars um, as well as the general population. (laughs) I definitely do agree I think there is a lot of unlearning required because you don't realize how much internalized Islamophobia, internalized Orientalism, internalized racism you are holding in your analysis of this region until you you're appropriately interrogated and your ideas are properly challenged and I think it is so easy when the status quo very comfortably reinforces these orientalist realities to carry on with these ideas um, and enter positions of power very easily without realizing that actually they are very harmful very detrimental Mm -hmm. probably related to that as well people shouldn't be afraid of admitting that they sometimes don't know things like if they get asked a question about something intricate and important especially considering how you know nuanced area studies in general is you know it it should be entirely acceptable for even someone who is considered an expert to say i cannot answer that question because by answering the question wrong they might do more damage than by not answering it at all Yes. And I think it's very important to understand that there is no solution to the issues in the Middle East. There is no, no one's going to sit down and turn around and be like, yes, I know exactly <laughs> what we should do. And there's no harm in admitting that because it is a complex region, complex community that has complex issues. Do you then think like the whole idea of an American peace plan, for example, like the Trump peace plan, <laughs> that yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible plan anyway. But do you th- yeah. what I mean more is on, on a more conceptual level that the idea of a peace plan is silly? I think it's ridiculous because I right. think I, there are so many factors that require a very serious, no, I wouldn't say intervention, but require very serious like addressing. But crucially, the people who harbour these opinions, these orientalist and uh, dehumanising opinions are the ones making policy. So we have so much influence over the situations in the Middle East as a region who will never like, know the reality. Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Join us next week when we discuss the history, the culture and the questions raised by Bachi Bazi, the dancing boys of Afghanistan. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre. It is edited and hosted by myself, Gilda Skokas, with the invaluable aid of Lily Sullivan, Felix Walker, Michael Mimari, Hazar Madah, Max Randall, Frederica Brockhoven, Iman Farah, Rose Johnson, 